0: Towards the end of 2018, I got a call from from Chris Alaise uh, he said he just said to me, look, do you want to work with some scurf fruit, you know, so obviously I got I got very
1: excited. <laughs> 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 oh butcher, you dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> There's just one catch, John. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, that's it was,
0: hilarious. It was, it was literally the conversation we had, and we uh, <laughs> were very excited, and he said, the a catch. It's Flavien Blanc. I was like, oh. oh. <laughs> uh, my immediate reaction was like, nah, not a chance.
1: Hello, and welcome to the XNMO podcast. I'm David Clark. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa, where the sale and movement of wine at least for now is forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. You can find our release schedule at xnmo.co.za. Also a quick note on the quality of the audio. As we are in lockdown, we are relying on the internet to record these podcasts and unfortunately it doesn't always behave. We have done what we can to make these episodes as listenable as possible. Today on the podcast, we have John Seckham, winemaker and owner of Thorn and Daughters, a wine brand based in the Walker Bay district in the Cape South Coast region of South Africa. From his maiden vintage in 2013, John quickly established Thorn and Daughters as a name to take very seriously. He was one of the first winemakers to put a spotlight on the very rare Semillon Gris variety with a wine called Tin Soldier, which was released from his maiden vintage in 2013. He makes his wines at Gabriel's in Botreva, alongside other New Wave producers, Peter Ellen Finlayson uh, from Christellum, also the Gabrielscliff winemaker, and Marilise Newman from Memento Wines. John is also one of the very few South African winemakers who studied viticulture and winemaking outside of South Africa. We chat about his journey in creating the Thorn and Daughters project with his wife Tash, and he talks us through each of his 2019 wines. John is a true gentleman and one of the nicest people in wine that I have met. I think being slightly older and having a bit more of a diverse professional background gives John a, a different perspective and a worldview than many of his contemporaries. And I think that's really served him well. He is quite humble, almost apologetic, a very deep thinker, and a hopeless Epicurean. I give you John Seckham. I'm joined here by John Seckham of Thorn and Daughters. Hi, John. Hi, Dave, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks for thanks for joining me today.
0: Uh, good to be here.
1: You've got your 2019s due for release pretty soon. Maybe run us through your, your life in wine very briefly from when you got into the wine trade because I know you didn't study wine uh, straight out of high school. Uh, you sort of came through it via hospitality more. So maybe walk us through that and just give us a bit of your background.
0: Yeah, so I think um, you know, my first encounter with wine was, was working in hospitality uh, I grew up in Johannesburg, you know, not in a, a wine and food family. We had wine, but it was usually the box variety, uh, sitting in the fridge. So, you know, that was, that was kind of limited experience I had with wine. And then, uh, while I was at Stellenbosch University studying mathematics and computer science, I met my now wife, Tash. And yeah, she kind of put me in touch with, with that world as her, her folks, had uh, have wonderful, Hotel and restaurant up in the Drakberg. So I spent the summers working with her dad in the kitchen, working in front of house there. And while we were at Hombosh, I started working with Ken and Alan Forrester at 96 Winery Road. And, um, you know, that was a great introduction to a lot of different wines. Uh, you know, we drank a lot of wine there. We met a lot of wine people. Uh, people were very generous with tasting. So that's, you know, that's really where it all started.
1: What year was and that? John?
0: When- uh, that was 99. so we were just finishing up Dombosch. And in 2000, Sash and I moved to the UK, to Oxford. Yeah, well, I had a very short stint working in an office in IT and, uh, you know, absolutely hated it. So I went straight back to a restaurant where i have been working and, yeah, pretty much for the next seven, eight years, I was working hospitality on and all sort of peaked, managing a wine list in, in Edinburgh. On that, on that side. But then in early uh, Dave Johnson of Newton Johnson is, uh, my wife's godfather. And he said, look, you know, if you ever want to come and, uh, uh learn about wine making, uh, you're welcome to come and do the harvest. So I did my first harvest with Barty Exion, who was consulting for Newton Johnson back then. And I think it was Gordon Johnson's second or third harvest then. Yeah. And then I think, you know, once, Once I'd been through that experience, I knew, you know, wine production is where I wanted to be. Uh, But it took a few more years, you know, to kind of nail that down. Uh, So Tash and I were based in the UK, and I decided to do a a a BSc Viticultural and Ethnology at Stunton College in the south south of England near Brighton. Did that degree, you know, worked a bunch of harvests, Australia, France, uh, California, I uh, did quite a bit of winemaking in England, you know, we worked for Ridgeview, and I think we did uh, winemaking at the college as well. That's kind of where, you know, got my my early grounding in in winemaking. While I was at college in England, a Canadian friend and I started a little business, setting up vineyards, doing trellising, fencing, planting, and all that kind of thing with there's a big demand for it. And he's carried on with that. And he now plants about 3 million vines a year. It's, it's a massive, massive business, you know, with the boom going on in England. Uh, but for my part, you know, I really wanted to make wine. And, you know, I kind of got bored of knocking posts in the ground and stringing up wires. So I went back to uh, working for some big co-ops in the south of France. And then, what is it, late 2008, Tash got pregnant. Uh, so we decided to make the move back to South Africa uh, to be close to the family. When I got back here, worked for Selima for Iona, demanded you, uh, and then what was that to put us about uh, yeah, it was twenty twelve, then I was when I was working Maine Dew, Chris Arlach was our neighbour. Uh, we were living on the Babylon farm, which that's up again here, more around there. So, you know, a couple of beers with Chris one night after harvest. You know, I saw his lights were still on. You know, and he said, look, you know, you look like you're in a space to start making your own wine. So Chris offered me a bit of space to see him around. So I, I got organized with a few little vineyard contracts uh, to... Start pressing wine from the thirteen harvest and you know at that stage we were sharing the space with Olaf vineyards and with Chris Allen. Yeah, it was a really great uh really great space to start out in and uh, build a friendship with, with Chris and
1: Peter Allen. What was your inspiration in terms of the name of Thorn, Thorn and Daughters? I mean did you did you come up with that pretty early on in the piece or was that a, a later conversation in the thought process?
0: Yeah, so I think
1: I think I quit my job mid twenty
0: twelve. So you know, Tash and I had obviously started to think about what we we're going to call ourselves. And, you know, to be very honest, it took, it did take us about 18 months to, to hit on an uh, idea. You know, and we like the idea of, uh, you know, obviously of having a family brand. Our surname is actually Thorn Seckham and Second tends to be very, very hard for people to pronounce. So we settled on the thorn part. That was, we felt simpler and stronger.
1: You're both known as sukombi in in the Afrikaans parts of, uh, of South Africa. <laughs> so is thorn a bit easier for them?
0: Yeah, exactly. So, kombi okay. is yeah comically mispronounced our entire, entire life. So we stuck with thorn, uh, more understandable.
1: Fair enough. And the first year you came out, was, which was 2013, was your first pr- production. You came out with something called The Rocking Horse and another wine called The Tin Soldier, both of which you still produce. Talk us through, I mean, the, one of them is a is a white blend at that time uh, with a few different varieties, and that's changed slightly over the years. And then the other was a, a Skin Contact semi slash Semi-On Gris. I mean, that was a pretty bold maiden vintage choice, I would have thought. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, you obviously know Chris
0: Allard as well as I do, you know, sharing space with them and ideas. You know, we really cooked up a lot of plans and ideas, you know, and there was, a, you know, a lot of the discussion was around, you know, making South African wine. you know, or well, wines with a very, very strong South African identity. You know, part of the reasoning there was to start strong with, with wines that, you know, we couldn't find somewhere else. And wines, you know, we weren't trying to imitate... Uh, Someone else's style or something, you know, and really sort of strike out in our own direction. Um, you know, so especially something like Simeon Gris, you know, that, that, that was an ideal vehicle, you know, with, with Tim Soldier to do something, you know, very different that kind of hadn't been seen before. I mean, not that skin contact, you know, as a method is all that new. You know, it really wasn't, you know, that we were, we weren't reinventing the wheel, but, you know, we were, Looking to strike out in our own direction. And in terms of rocking horse, you know, I'd I'd had some extra or experience tasting some of these Mediterranean white blends. but a friend who's a a very avid collector and buys a lot of even Saudi's wines, and I'd always been very impressed by the Sardius. That was the kind of space where where we could really excel, you know, with the white wine, which you know, to bring together a few a few components and make something that was. You know, kind of stronger than all the, the components put together. So the idea behind Rocking Horse was to base it around older vineyards of Chenin and Semillon, but then to bring in Chardonnay, Rusan to kind of bring some modern edge to it. You know, and to create something that, yeah, really doesn't doesn't exist elsewhere in the world.
1: Not only does it not exist, it's almost not, uh, not possible in many other places in the world to do what you've done with The Rocking horse in terms of blending multiple, vintage, multiple varieties from multiple regions and those specific varieties as well, especially with that, that shinn being such a, an important component.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that kind of ties into, you know, one part of our philosophy was, was not to put geographical boundaries in what we were doing and rather to focus on the wine and the bottle as that story develops, the sites become more interesting. You know, if we can if we can express the sites through really great wines, then the story of the site becomes interesting. Kind of hard to explain, but you know, I think starting out with Thorn and Daughters, I just decided I didn't want to put any kind of boundaries on it because I knew that we would kind of grow and develop our aesthetic as we as we moved along. I didn't want to limit that with sort preconceived ideas. So, yeah, you know, obviously you, you, you strike out in a direction, but, you know, as you go along, you learn things and you experience different things, you see things, some things work, some things don't. You know, so there's a natural evolution, but yeah, you need to have an overall direction in which you're trying to move in.
1: Yeah, and I think it's, it was very wise of you to, and quite showed a bit of foresight to give yourself that room, or the lack of claustrophobic character in terms of the, the drive that you you wanted to take the wines into, and give yourself a little bit more of an open playing field to to make adaptations as you went. I think a lot of people sometimes when they when they create. A brand, a new brand, and especially with South Africa, there's so many new brands every year in the last five or ten. A lot of them have sort of nailed down what they're doing before all the market's decided if if that's okay or not, um, if the market decides to support them or not. So it's I think it's I think it was wise to to leave that open for yourselves. It was luck that we did that, but it was also I think, you know, to
0: give ourselves room to learn, to give ourselves room to make mistakes. You know, I think a lot of people Put too much pressure on themselves to be perfect straight out the gate and you know have this 10-year plan and all that kind of thing yeah. you know and you don't leave yourself Room to develop, you know, and I think that I think it's one of the things we realised, you know, that the, you know, when you start one of these brands, the playing field is so open, you can really do anything. We realised that and just said, yeah, we've got to, we've got to respond to things as they, as they come up in front of
1: us. No, very cool. And so fast forward uh, seven years into 2020, you're now about to release your 2019 lines. So the rocking horse is still there, tin Soldier's still there. What else is? What else? What other wines are you releasing in the 2019 vintage? So yeah, we've we've ended up with you know
0: a very interesting stable of wines that kind of re- represents this idea of not being geographically bound. In the last few years, we've added kites, which is uh, an old vine Semillon from the Switlands. You know, and one of the sort of happy things that's come out of this organic growth process is that we now have uh, the Schreibers on the Paderberg who grow a uh, uh, tin soldier and paper kite grapes. The paper kite is from a, a bush vine Sémillon vineyard that was planted in 1963. It's predominantly Sémillon blanc with a, a smattering of uh, Sémillon gris vines in there uh, and that goes into the paper kite. Then cuttings from that Sémillon gris have gone to make uh, a vineyard of 100% Sémillon gris and that's going to the tin soldier. So. It's really great, you know, this wine started out in a, a very different place, but now they're sort of very, very closely related and but two very, very different expressions of semion. We've become somewhat of a semion specialist, you know, also along this road. What we've also added, uh, we've got Cat's Cradle, it's uh, it's another old vineyard of Shannon, uh up on the side of from Source Rousseau at Lancourt, uh, and that goes into our Cat's Cradle bottling. And then from 19, we've added uh, Snakes and Ladders, which is a 100% Sauvignon Blanc from up uh, in the Skerfberg. There's two very well-known wines made uh, up there: just Given Given Saudi's Old Vine Series Skirfberg and uh, Kozala Magnetic North. Uh, and we've tapped into a, a vineyard of Sauvignon Blanc there that it, it's relatively old; it's about 24 years old bush vine, but yeah, it's quite an incredible expression of Savion, and uh, I must admit, I didn't see myself making Savion again, but you know, that, that's part of the journey and, and ditching those preconceptions.
1: Cool. So, and then there's um a couple of reds as well, or just the one red? Just the one red under Thorn and Daughters at the moment, but the wonder is hard.
0: When we conceive that, one we we expected to be using Sinso a little bit more than we are, but in nineteen I finally made the decision to lose the Cinso component of that. So it's now based around uh, Grenache Syrah Mauvais, Uh and yeah, the nineteen is uh, really special one. Made a lot a lot less of it than than before, but you know, I think we really hit the nail on the head, you know, in terms of what we're trying to express with you know with the red blend there. Another one that we make that's Again, taking taken on a bit of a life of its own and steadily become more important with the Copper Pot, in Noir. Now, that started life as a house wine for my parents at their hotel. So they're... They are in Cleopatra Mountain Farmhouse and their logo for the hotel is an old French copper pot. So that's where we where we got the name for the wine. You know, it's just something we've steadily grown almost without without paying too much attention because we were, you know, working very hard on on growing what we were doing for Thorn and Daughters. You know, it's just steadily become more important. And, you know, I think we've managed to put some really great, you know, wines together into, you know, what I think is very good good value bond. I you
1: know. yeah i was going to say it sits at a different price point in a different part of the market than the wines, isn't it yeah you know and i think that was it
0: was almost the idea we wanted to over deliver it on value a little bit and just kind of see where it goes you know and you know luckily it's now become a project we kind of stands on its own GP feet it's allowed us to continue to work with Pinot noir which which i do love also making Pinot you know, in a space with some of the best Pinot you know, noir winemakers in the country. You know, we also wanted to be a bit modest in our ambitions there. But yeah, it's been a great way for me to carry on working with Pinot.
1: So snakes and ladders. soon, you have block 2019, is it WO? the Phil mountain. So this is off the Lang Farm. The This The Fanlel. And so, when did you first look at this fruit? Was this this Did you play around with it in previous vintages, or what was happening with the fruit before you got hold of it? Towards the end of 2018,
0: I got a call from, from Chris Alleis. Uh, he said he just said to me, Look, do you want to work with some scref fruit? You know, so obviously I got I got very excited.
1: <laughs> 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 oh butcher, you dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> There's just one catch, John. <laughs> oh man, that's that was, hilarious!
0: It uh, that was literally the conversation we had, and uh, we're very excited. And he said, "There's a catch. It's on Blanc." And I was like, "Oh." oh. <laughs> My immediate reaction was like, nah, not a chance. But then he said to me, look, he made a barrel actually from the Lane's farm. Uh, they've also got some similarly old stuff on there. And he said, look, just come, come taste the wine. He didn't feel like that particularly nailed the pick, but you know, it was a bottling for his dad. So I said, look, I'll come taste the wine and something interesting about it. We can chat about it further. And you know, there really was something compelling about that. So I think the following week, we took a drive up there, you know, and I met Bastien, Christian and Lil, and had a look at the vineyard. It was looking really, really great. So yeah, we decided to pull the trigger on that. I'm very pleased to say, because it's quite an early pick for us, uh, it's kind of quite easy for us to nail that. And I think we nailed the pick in 19 and 20. You know, we've got a great balance of ripe stomping on fruit, banging, acidity, you know, really nice ripeness. So, yeah, I think we managed to nail that in 19, but the thing that Chris said to me is, you know, it's, it is a massive commitment, you know, to go out and get these grades, you know, it's about five hours in the truck. So we get out there, you know, probably leave, need the cellar around midnight, get there at five, five thirty, ready for a pick at six and then head back the same day. So, you know, it's, an, it's a massive commitment, but. You know, when I see what's in barrel for 2020 and what's in bottle for 19, um, it's totally worth it. So,
1: in terms of winemaking for that, uh, so, sorry, John, just I want to make you go backwards just a second. Sorry, what was so compelling about the wine you were tasting? I think a weight, a concentration of fruit, an incredible acidity. Um, you know,
0: at the risk of talking about minerality, you know, there's a real, a real sense of soil there. You know, yeah, really a little bit indescribable there, but. You know, real depth to the wine, and real you know, real interest beyond very, very primary fruit of on You know, which which we very seldom see with Savian. You know, it usually makes quite simplistic aromatic wines that are fairly one-dimensional. Tasting that wine in barrel, I was like, wow, there's there's really a lot of depth to this. There's a lot going on.
1: And so yeah, you were sorry. You, I interrupted you. But you're just about to get into. Um what you did in the cellar? You know, one of the most important things we can do is, is pick
0: the grapes for the right time. You know, if, if we pick the grapes at the right time, there's, there's little, little to be done in the cellar. And I think especially with the, with the single vineyards, you know, you've really got this kind of one shot to get it right. You know, at least for the blends, you know, you can, if you've got portions that are too alcoholic, you can blend with less alcoholic portions. So, you know, there's a bit more, there's a bit more wiggle room there. But, you know, with the single vineyards, you've really got to nail it. So once we bring that into the cellar, just whole bunch press, not old bathroom, it looks like a horizontal basket press. You know, we work very oxidatively on juice. So we let that we let that shit go brown. We don't add sulfur, we don't use dry ice. So basically we take that that little Sauvignon Blanc uh, recipe book that's placed around the industry and we just put it on the fire. So we did all the wrong things with this uh, in in terms of that recipe. You know, work the juice very often, it'll be, it's naturally fermented in uh, a couple of 600 liter barrels this year, or 19, I should say, and let it go through mallow naturally and then get some sulfur in about August and then a little sop up again before before bottling. I think like all our wine winemaking, we try to, do, try to do as little as possible. You know, obviously if things need nudges, they need a bit of batonage or racking, you know, we'll do this, things like that. but. You know, largely we try to we try to do things as simply as possible.
1: And how many bottles of that in 19 did you make? It's about 1,720, so it's going to be pretty limited. So for the world? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. worldwide, yeah. 1,720. Okay, perfect. Next, the Cat's Cradle was the other most recent edition. So that's uh, Sculpt's Rousseau, who um, who actually we get our yeah. pinotage from for our for our wine. Exactly. No, that's, so that's, that's Eubair's well. so Cliff.
0: Uh, yeah, L'Enclerc.
1: No, no, but it's in the UBES Valley in, on the part of
0: Burke. Yeah. Yeah, so Cat's Cradle, when we added the first the first Cat's Cradle, we've been in 17. So we've been working with sources Vineyards since 15, and it's always, uh, since then, it's been a very integral part of rocking boards. But even back... Ooh, I'm trying to think when we first heard that the allies would be buying Nivedam next door, then Butch would be reducing his commitment to this vineyard. So basically, from Memento and myself share a good a good chunk of the shenan there. You know, it's a vineyard that's become more and more important in terms of our contract. You know, I've always thought we just didn't have enough in the beginning, but we now have enough to... Do single vineyard bottling produces very compelling wine. Sometimes a little bit understated when they're when they're young, but they have a wonderful depth and minerality to them that, that I really love. And you know they're very understated uh, and take a little bit of time to really show their best.
1: Is this the third vintage of this wine? It's the third vintage, yeah. And have you made much many adjustments to what you're doing in the cellar with this with this fruit? The winemaking that we do, uh, especially
0: with our white is, is largely the same, barring a hundred in various directions. Uh, but with the Shannon, I like fermenting it in the old 600 litre barrels we have. They're, they're a little bit more reductive, tend to make the wines a little bit more linear. Whereas if they are in smaller 2 5 they might be a little bit more open aromatic uh, yep. earlier on. I quite like that reserve about that. And they stay on their gross leaves, you know, so we've kind of got that, that reductive power of the kind of you know, holding the wine in. Uh, but like I say, we, you know, we only add salt for the first time in end of July, August, sometimes December, depending on the condition of the wine. You know, so they do have a bit of time to stabilise and open up. But yeah. like I say, we really keep this kind of linearity about the wine at
1: the moment. You've already um, chatted a little bit about Paper Kite and Tin Soldier. Now, Paper Kite used to be from Franschhoek and now it's from, from Swatland. Maybe just talk to me about the decision to keep the name, because it's not, obviously these aren't vineyards that you own, these are vineyards that you work with and the growers that you work with. Talk to me about that decision to, to keep the name even though the fruit was different.
0: Paper Kite was born in, in the 15th vintage when we, we had, a, had a bit of access to the thing Landau du Val. But unfortunately, at that stage, Basil Landau was looking for someone really to take over the whole farm uh, in terms of buying grapes, you know, vinifying and kind of really take it off his hand, which we obviously weren't in a position to do. The fruit uh, from that vineyard ethically epically old. It was planted in 1903. So the fruit is... That is now going into uh, Ripley Bridge's cellar. So, you know, unfortunately, that's kind of the nature of what we do. Is some of our contracts are very secure, and then some of our contracts we're in one year, out another year, and you know, sometimes we just have to be a bit philosophical about that. So, the first, the first bottling of Papakai was from the, the landau de Val vineyard in '16. Knowing that we weren't going to get uh, any fruit off that. I approached Francisca Schreiber and I said, look, you know, I've been paying, a, you know, a huge premium for these old semion grapes. And I know that, you know, I knew that she had a, a really, a really good vineyard. So I said to her, look, you know, I don't want to be pushy about the contracts or anything like that, but you know, this is, this is the kind of money we're talking you know, if you'd like to talk to the guys that are buying it, you know, and, and just get back to me. It took a couple of weeks, but she approached them, and I think the they wanted to budge about 800 grand a ton or something like that, so she said, no, you know, we're prepared to pay good money for it, for so the contract passed out. You know, that 2015 almost became an anomaly, anomaly, so I decided, you know, seeing as we had such a good contract signed up with San Francisco, I I said, well... Heberkite is going to be an expression of old vine semillon uh, going forward and it will be based around this vineyard. So, you know, it's again one of those things that took a couple of years to resolve itself. You know, now each year it's a single vineyard bottling from that old part of it start. Are
1: you making the wine pretty much the same as the others or is there a little bit more skin contact on this one? There's a green component um, in the vineyard as well. Are you including that in this wine now or are you... Shifting that over towards the uh, tin the soldier. There's a very small, big component to the
0: vineyard. You know, the I would say sort of five to seven percent. Uh, but when we pick the the, the paper type you vineyard, know, we pick everything and hold on to presses. It. Okay. So it's very much made, you know, in the same method as Soviana and the Shannon. You know, the one caveat with Semion is that it, it does tend to get a bit reductive. So, Watch that very, very carefully, especially after malolactic finish And we often need to do a racking or grossly leaves on the on the semi-on, uh, because it can get stubbornly reductive,
1: uh, yeah. which I'm very anti. How have the vintages progressed? I mean, this seems like it's going to be the most uh, being, you know, a single vineyard, old vine wine, probably the most reflective of the of the vintage. Would you agree with that, or not out of your whites? I think all of our wines, you know, we want to see some some kind of vintage expression. And I mean, certain
0: expression of the vintage, you know, through the names of that, that particular vineyard. But yeah, I would think 19, you know, 19 very much in a line with the previous three vintages. You know, we've got a good balance of acidity and ripeness with, with these wines.
1: Yeah, I think it'd be fair to say, you know, it's a good look at vintage conditions. There's like a mother-daughter relationship with the paper cut and the tin soldier. And the tin soldier, also has changed sources of the fruit. And has your winemaking and time on skins and de-stemming, all of that sort of uh, manual processing changed? Like you say, it's the wine that
0: we've made from the beginning, you know, there's definitely been a clear evolution, you know, especially around sourcing. You know, when we first, we first encountered Degree, Chris Allard was working with the La Block in France. I went in with Mornay Frey from Delaire on an old Sémillon block near the prison there at St. Croix. You know, Butch and I got to talking about the gris. You know, we said we hadn't tasted many or seen many wines that were made out of it. I think it was a year the Orangerie had made a whole bunch of Sémillon gris that was quite intriguing. You know, so we we're very curious about, about Samuel Gris and what to do with it, which at the time I think was vinifying his Gris separately from La Colline. And then what I decided to do on that Sainte Croix block, I saw that there was Gris in it, but not very much. What we did in the first year was to pick all the Gris out of the block, and then pick the same number of crates of white out of the block. Okay. And then descent all that and do a skin contact on that. First iteration, that was 100% skin contact wine. Uh, we never fermented it on stems, you know, because I never wanted something too rustic. So the first iteration was a 100% skin contact or skin fermented wine. Do about seven to 10 days until almost dry and then press or settle in the tank and take a barrel. Now, if we fast forward to 19, in 17, 18, and 19, I've been toying around with a whole bunch pressing a portion of the semi-engris. So we've gradually upped the proportion of the wine that's not skin fermented. So basically, we take a portion fermented on skins and another portion we uh, we press directly. In 19, I think we finally got that portion up to about 40% of whole bunch pressed wine. Yeah, and we've hit on to really... Really nicely balanced wine in you know, 19. I would say, I'd say with snakes and ladders, the tin soldier is definitely one of the, you know, one wine stands out, you know, in the lineup. It's really come right in the, in the 2019 vintage.
1: Yeah, and it's almost the wine that you're known for internationally, isn't it? I mean, people, because it is so unique to South yeah. Africa, semi hungry, it is such a rarity here. And then for someone to, to really delve into it and and examine it from different different points of view and, you know, ferment it and treat the fruits slightly differently over a course of seven years. It's uh, It's been a very, very interesting journey.
0: Yeah. Going back to not putting too many preconceptions around what we do, you know, we also, I wouldn't say that we're experimental, but, you know, each year I try to sort of tweak and fine tune what we're doing um, because, you know, there's also an awareness that we are still a very young wine business and, you know, we need to learn, we, you know, we need to keep improving, you know, without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I think if, you, if you're if you always chopping and changing what you do, you know, it's, it's very hard for people to follow what you do. But I think, you know, what we have managed to achieve through that, you know, especially if we go back and do, more verticals of the wine, you know. There's, there's definitely a of path that was followed, you know, and I, I think the house style is there, you know, and and we just sort of slowly fine tuned
1: everything that we've done. There's almost like a precise luxuriousness to the wines. They're not too luxurious in terms of too over the top and and flavourful, but there is a precision and a and a, a, a tightness to them, attention to them, but with absolute generosity of of and nuance of flavours. So and I think that the Ten Soldier has. Gone more towards that with every successive vintage. You know,
0: I think with the 19, yeah, I'm really, really pleased with the result. You know, the the whole bunch press portion brings out a whole other aromatic dimension there that, that that was maybe lacking a little bit in the in the previous vintages. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a very exciting wine. You know, and I think, like you say, it is a bit of a statement wine, and you know, it is it is one of those wines wakes people up to what we're doing you know but i would I would also say it's probably one of our more idiotic wines that's kind of stand in its own space
1: and that's probably why it's seen as as, uh, as why it sort of goes along with your name in terms of it's thorn and daughters oh they make that tin soldier wine because there aren't yeah. that many others out there and finally on the whites the rocky horse i think the advantage of having made a few vintages of this wine you know we kind of
0: we're getting into a space where we know what we're doing and you know what we're trying to achieve Nineteen eighteen 18 and 19 with the rocking horse felt like very much cruise control vintages you know we've got a very settled set of vineyards that are going into those wines we know what to do with them we know where we want them to be A 19 where do we go? We go back to being a little bit Roussan heavy on this. You know, it's got a, it's got a fullness and power to it. The Claret portion has diminished a little bit. So we've kind of lost that, that, that very delicate edge on that. But I think, you know, we've got fantastic acidity from all of the blocks. So, again, I think, you know, that's a wine where, you know, like you say, we, we balance that opulence with, you know, with tension and um, linearity and acidity. You know, again, very, very, very happy with how the '19 has gone. you know. And I think, you yeah, I think each year, like you say, we, we end up with the with vintage expression, you know, and, and some nuance to the wine. But, uh, yeah, I think with the 19s, a really, really good place.
1: And how are the previous vintages drinking? If you look back at the wines you've made, the rocking horses, what? How would you surmise the the journey of of those wines? When was it? A couple year, bit of a year ago, a couple years ago, we did
0: a small vertical in Cape Town. Yeah, and I think the wine, you know the wines are aging very agreeably. You know, and I think with the way we're making wine, you know, the intention is is to produce wines that that age gracefully. The the intention was always to make wines uh to age and it's yeah you know, it's impressive to see that they you know that they are aging well you know and i think if we look back on you know the 2016 wine for me was was quite difficult to deal with initially because it was very very austere we've a few bottles of that recently and that's just you know every time i drink it it just gets into a better and better space you know um, yeah. for wine that was sort of so austere and, and difficult to begin with yeah i think the wine age extremely well yeah, I think it is a common question, you know, we get from a lot of people who collect the wine, you know, when should I drink this? I think it's a very it's a very difficult thing to say, you know, to say, oh, it's only in 10 years. I think the wines, you know, they do get a lot of pleasure when they're younger and, you know, they have that ability to age and express other dimensions. So, yeah, certainly. You know, I've had a couple of bottles of 13 lately that are absolutely singing.
1: I had a uh, 13 recently also and uh, it was delicious. In this example, I mean, with the uh, with the sort of the new wave of South African wines, I mean, no one really knows how they age yet. I mean, that's just the, the nature of it. In terms of it is a it is a new way. There are these this style of uh, of yeah. wines with this attention to viticulture and attention to to detail and and sympathetic uh, wine making practices hasn't really been explored anywhere near as much as it has, as it is being now. So we just don't know, to be honest. They, they could go. Five years, they could go 10 years, they could go 50 years. We just we just don't know. I mean, obviously, we have intuition and, and experience on our side in terms of tasting wines, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, okay. it, it isn't a an exact science. Something I've discussed a lot with uh, my private mailing list clients, you know, they
0: ask, you know, have you drunk this lately? How's that tasting? So, you know, meant to. Kind of formalize that and just put it out on the website and just kind of put tasting notes up when we taste out of some of the bottles. Because I think, like you say, if we're very honest with ourselves, we don't know, you know, like I said about, you know, kind of ditching those preconceptions, like a lot of people would expect you to know. And you say, well, we are, we are growing our business. We're learning as we go. You know, obviously our intentions are in the right place, but, you know, wines can be very difficult to understand. You know, although we can intend something to age for 10 years, you know, whether it actually goes the distance is is very difficult to say now.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I get the question, obviously, um, also not only about your wines, but other... Uh, wines of a similar philosophical take, and and my answer g- generally, and it's it's a bit of a, uh, a cop out in in some ways I guess, is that e- these wines have been made and everything's been done to ensure that these wines can last in bottle. Whether they do or not, or what precise length of time that they survive and, and get better in bottle is is an unanswerable question at this point. So it's it's not like you know drink your drink your premier cru Burgundies after ten and your Grand cruise after twenty. It's not it's not that easy, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. And I just say, I think there's there's a lot of resources out there. You know, I think if you do have expensive bottles of wine in your cellar, I think you know we're very lucky to have a lot of resources. You know, we can go on the internet and, and see if people are drinking them. And I, I suppose with a bit of education, you can hazard a guess at where they are. You know, when it gets when it gets down to it, you know, if you collect and love wine, you know, sooner or later, you need to. Decide what you like drinking. Do you like drinking young do you like drinking your red young, your white old? You know, that's it's really such a personal question. I remember getting into not a uh, I wouldn't even call it an argument, but just a discussion with Keith Prothero, who's the who was the angel investor in Belly. He likes his red you know, aged to the point where they, you know, they're almost non-existent anymore. Um, whereas I like to drink my reds when there's a lot more life and primary fruits in them. You
1: yeah, know, he, he, he likes tertiary <laughs> flavors, and you like primary flavors and and textures. Yeah, exactly. And you know, we had an argument. since We had a, a
0: hermitage, hermitage, you know, and I was, it was was La Chapelle from Jabulé, and I'd had the same vintage many years previously, and I, I like the wine when it had more more life in it, you know, and, and hmm. he thought, oh, no, no, it drank perfectly when we drank it. You know, that, that's down to personal taste. So I think, you know, exactly. if, if anyone's collecting wine, buying wine, you know, you also have to learn about your own palate and, hmm. and and fit wine to what you like to drink, what you like to eat, you know, go through that journey, put things in your cellar, you know, drink a bottle this year, drink, you know, a bottle next year, see how
1: things evolve. It's part of the fun of wine. Absolutely, John. That's a very good advice. Buy an extra six-pack and find out for yourself.
0: <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> now, the two reds, Wanderer's Heart, what, is that like a red version of, of Rocking Horse in terms of philosophical starting point?
0: If we look at, look at it rather broadly, you know, we've ended up with a you know, Southern French Mediterranean white style blend and a Southern French red style blend, but neither of which you will actually find uh in in the south of France. But you know, it just kind of puts people into the right the right sort of thinking space. Uh but this wondrous heart, my my feeling with Grenache was that, you know, if we pick it a little bit earlier, it's still got vibrant acidity, you know, you get really, really bright fruit and floral flavours from it. You know, so I think if we pick it a bit earlier we can have a really bright expressive wine sort of pinot-esque I mean Cinso is supposed to be the poor man's Pinot but for me there's, there's a little bit of flavour crossover with Pinot you know, and, and Grenache you know I think you can get a citrus element to Grenache which is sometimes the in Pinot as well so we're trying to capture that in Grenache and then add cinso as this kind of background perfume then Morbedra and Syrah just to kind of spice things up yeah what happened in 19 is that it's got totally frustrated with the, the, the Senso component. It was, it was a lovely old vineyard, but I got sick of making such high pH wines and, you know, kind of chucking out half the barrels and all that sort of thing. Yep. Sort of sense of irritation. Just said, no, nah, I'm going to put the blend together with Grenache, uh, Merveja and Syrah. And, yeah, I think going forward, that wine might find more of a home in, uh, in the Overberg, uh, where we were working with uh, we've got some vineyards there we're sourcing a little bit of line fruit on it yeah it's a, it's a wine that's it's evolved quite a lot since we since we put out the 16 and you know in all honesty I'm trying to figure it out for myself I think I'm a much more much more natural white wine maker than I'm a red wine
1: maker. And have you got some plans to do single varietal reds in the future? We, we may do.
0: Yeah, uh, it's a question I get a lot. Uh, but you know, I think, like I say, it's, it's a fairly organic journey that we're on. You know, if I find something that that's very very compelling, I'd be tempted to to work with that. Um, but I think, like I say, that tends to be on the white front, uh, and then you know, in terms of reds. I haven't seen something and that I'm, you know, desperate to work with, uh, but yeah, it may well have, you know, and, and Pinot is kind of uh, scratching that itch for me, you
1: know. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, I see. And maybe just chat quickly about the names of the wines. They're quite um, visceral and themic, or well, they have a theme. The whites seem like, like kids' toys. Yeah, so the, the first name we
0: came up with was, was Rocking Horse. Is I just... Uh, knocked upon an old barrel and and made a rocking horse out of it for my daughter's first birthday. So I think, you know, going back on that sort of creative path that we had, we you know, we had Thorn and Daughters, uh, and we said rocking horse is a great name for wine and brought in that idea of being handcrafted and something that was linked to us. And then we realised, you know, we have this archetype of childhood. You know, there's almost no culture that doesn't have some form of rocking horse. And their children's lives so mm. we just we had this idea of archetypes of childhood, you know and then we the second one we had was tin soldier my image for that was little tin soldiers that you're playing with in the garden as a kid that sort of later get dug up when you're you know digging digging over the bed and stuff like that so I said Demion was kind of like that you know it used to be such a which is a big part of the South African wine industry. And now, you know, there's really, really huge old vineyards hanging around. They're like this old, this old foot soldier of the South African industry that hardly exists anymore. We kind of branched out on that. So, you know, paper kites, uh, cat's cradle, this little string game that you play with your hands. You know, these are all things that are archetypes of childhood. And we felt being a family brand and our daughters kind of growing up with this, uh, we thought it was a great, a great theme to work with. And then just one slight variant on that was Wonder of Hearts, uh, where we got a friend of ours to write a short series of short stories for our kids. Took the inspiration from that for that name from one of the short stories.
1: I appreciate your um, your time uh, running through these lines for me. Uh, just before I let you go, obviously you probably mentioned a few of. Um, these already but uh if someone comes and buys and drinks all of the uh Thorn and daughters wines they can what would you point to them next from south africa what are you drinking and uh, uh buying and drinking uh for yourself yeah
0: that's uh that's a very really good question uh i'm a huge fan of rickerson Offenberg's wines uh i think he's got a he's got an incredible touch especially on his reds his craft is uh sensational um we're very lucky to have access to a lot of Piton Finocen's Castellan wine, which just just cracking. It's something we buy regularly but don't drink regularly. Or uh, you know, obviously Castella wine, something like a porcelain and is <laughs> very inspirational on the reds. No, I think that's a good, you know, and then obviously Restless River, the Chardonnay is one of my favorites in South Africa. and The Cab is my wife's favorite red, so that's, that's handy.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, <a, laughs> that's a good visit then.
0: <laughs> and Vessel
1: was quite a fan of Rocking Horse, so yeah. Oh, that, that works out well. Um, and yeah. just a quick one, Max. Yeah. Um, your time at Ridgeview, their focus is on sparkling wine. Uh, is that something you want to explore at some point? Ooh, now you have to now you have to watch this space and be very, very patient. So I was I was obviously
0: making the sparkling wine at Richview, and then I made the sparkling wine to the de for a couple of years a couple of years. So that's always that's always been sort of, you know, bubbling under there. But just signed up a couple of contracts for that. Uh, it's mostly overberg fruits, you know, just out of the Hemel-en-Aarde Valley, but we've got some great Pinot you know, and great shard on that. So yeah, I've got some pretty cracking barrels of Based wine from the 20 vintage. Um, you know, it's never going to be a, a, a big project. The deal I have with the growers is, is you know, it's a, a fruit for wine kind of uh, gig, but it'll probably okay. give us about 10 cases by six a year, you know, to enjoy. It. But yeah, definitely that's, um, but that's a, you know, it's quite a long game, you know, especially if we want yeah. to do three or four years on leave. Uh, mm. very long game. Cool, man. Well, that's exciting.
1: Cool, well, John. Thank you so much, mate. Thanks, mate.